you have a Bible with you to open up to John 13, John 13, and as you're turning there, a lot of you have been asking where I was last week, and I was, uh, I was in some suffering last week. So at this time a week ago, my wife and I were running the marathon. We decided to run the LA Marathon, and so while, you know, sometimes suffering comes upon you, and sometimes you bring it upon yourself, and so uh, we went through this 26.2-mile uh, race. We had an actual uh, really fun time. I know that sounds weird, but for those who like to run long distance, it, it like hurts so good. And so we, had, uh, we were able to do that along with Kaylane Todd, who also completed the marathon. Congratulations to her. And it's just like a, a, a 24,000-people event. Uh, it's, it started at Dodger Stadium and went down to the Santa Monica Pier. There's all kind of people out there. There's bands playing, there's volunteers, they're passing out things at every mile you know, marker. Uh, one of the mile markers had cold beer and chili cheese dogs. So I uh, just wanted to report to you, I took neither because I don't think that's uh, really helping at all for a marathon, right? But it's just weird stuff that's happening out there with bands and people and fun, uh, fun people encouraging you. So we just had a total blast. Lisa and I both ran uh, what we felt like were really good times for how we trained, and so we were very pleased with that. And then certainly we paid the price because uh, the rest of the day, Sunday, I could not walk. And on Monday, I could not walk very well. And we looked like 98-year-olds walking around the house like this, and in fact, I preached at the seminary chapel on Tuesday, and I could barely get up the steps. And so I was able to bound up here a little bit better today. Thank goodness. In fact, a church member earlier was saying, hey, Adam, I saw you get out of your car on Tuesday, and you could barely make it into the church office. He's like watching me as I'm like shuffling in. So anyway, we're finally feeling a lot better. It was a lot of fun, all to the glory of God. You know, so every, in a race, all runners run, but only one gets a prize. And we understand that passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, just reminding us that, you know, physical training has some value, 1 Timothy 4.8, but godliness has value for all things. Uh, some of us just like to combine the two, all right? So anyway, thanks for praying for us. Thanks for allowing us to be gone. Thanks to Mark Rituna, who did a great job preaching on the explosive exaltation of the psalm, psalmist in Psalm 65 last week. Great job to him. So appreciate hearing him even pray. You know, when the guy's praying up here, I'm just like, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I like this guy. He's a good guy. So we're so thankful for him. So we're going to continue this morning in our passage in John 13. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study, and now we're kind of wrapping up the little section here on how Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And so this passage we're looking at will be verses 12 through 17. And if you have your outline there in your bulletin, I've given it the title, the sermon this morning, Humble Service Leads to happiness. So I want to show you this morning as we look again at Christ, how this humble service of washing uh, the, the disciples' feet and how Jesus challenges us in this text will be something that could lead to our happiness in the Lord. So here we are, John chapter 13. We'll look again at verses 12 through 17. The apostle John writes this, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I better start in verse 12 rather, okay? When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, 
Blessed are you if you do them. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray for insight. We pray for Holy Spirit power to illuminate our minds, to be able to understand with greater accuracy what it is that Jesus taught, both with his actions and with his words, so that on this morning we might be transformed from glory to glory as we want to see Christ and follow in his footsteps. Bless this time we have together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone wants to be happy. That's just part of who we are. That's how God created us, and we are created in his image, and we know that God is a good God. Psalm 34, 8. He is a God who rejoices. Zephaniah 3, 17. He is a God who is filled with joy. Nehemiah 8, 10. So I believe it is safe to say that we serve a happy God. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is the judge of the living and the dead. But God is also happy. And he created us to be happy. But we can only find our true happiness in him. I would say that every time we see a giggling baby or a young child that is laughing, we should just stop and be reminded in that moment that we're all born with this God-given natural and innate sense of happiness. That's part of who we are as those who have been created in God's likeness. Now, the world is desperately seeking happiness in their own way. I read an article this week with the title, Seven Ways to Find Inner and Real Happiness. Whenever you see that in the self-help section of the store or those you know, internet sites, it's always interesting. Here's a list of what this author says. Number one, don't take yourself too seriously. Number two, don't identify with suffering, loss, or illness as being who you are. So far, so good, right? Number three, it's okay to be you just as you are, warts and all. I think I'm still okay, but here's where it gets weird, right? Number four, make friends with yourself. Number five, feel everything, whatever it may be. Getting a little touchy-feely here, right? Number six, forgive yourself. Okay, now they've really lost it, right? Forgive yourself, love yourself, and treasure yourself. It's getting bad, right? <laughs> Number seven, meditate. So this is the kind of stuff the world offers. If you want to be happy, follow these seven things, and you can be happy. This is the best that psychology can do. It's all about you. It's all about being the best version that you can possibly be. It's all about doing whatever makes you happy. And this lie is all about evaluating yourself, giving yourself whatever you want, elevating yourself to the point of self-worship. And some people in this world are trying to find their happiness all by displeasing themselves. Now, there's another category of people in the world who have realized that it's not stuff that makes you happy. It's not about more money or nicer houses or faster cars or designer clothing and it's not about you loving yourself more. I mean, the way I see it, there are some in the world who find happiness either by making themselves happy or by making other people happy. And the approach of trying to find your happiness and making other people happy can be illustrated by this approach. Once a group of 50 people was attending a seminar, 
Suddenly, the speaker stopped and started giving each person a balloon. Each one was asked to write his or her name on the balloon using a marker pen, and then all the balloons were collected and put in another room. Now, these seminar attendees were let into that room and asked to find the balloon which had their name written on it within five minutes. Everyone was frantically searching for their name, pushing, colliding with each other, and there was utter chaos. And at the end of five minutes, no one was able to find their balloon. Now, each one was asked to randomly collect a balloon and give it to the person whose name was written on it. Within minutes, everyone had their own balloon. The speaker began. This is exactly what is happening in our lives. Everyone is frantically looking for happiness all around, not knowing where it is. Our happiness lies in the happiness of other people. Give them their happiness, and you'll get your own happiness. Then the speaker stated, and this is the purpose of human life. Now, I would say about that illustration, close, but no cigar. Maybe this motivational speaker is heading in the right direction, but the obvious problem is there's no mention of God, no mention of Christ and the gospel, no mention of forgiveness, no mention of the fact that this is actually falling into the sin of being a people pleaser. We are not here to please people, we are here to please God. And our ultimate goal is not to make others happy, but to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And as we are loving God and loving others in the way that He commands us to, we will serve God and serve others. And as we love and serve God and love and serve others for His glory, we will find happiness. So to summarize, happiness is not found in making yourself happy, and happiness is not found in making other people happy. Happiness is found in God, and loving God and loving others in the way that the Bible teaches will lead to your happiness. And so this morning, I want us to examine this truth more carefully because I believe this is taught in this passage by the Lord Jesus, both with his actions and his words. And I think the theme verse of this portion of scripture is found in verse 17. Look at it again, John 13, 17, where Jesus uh, finishes up this section, says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now we'll get there in a little bit. But for now, you need to know that the word blessed in this verse could also be translated as happy. So Jesus is saying, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. In order to fully understand what it is that Jesus is teaching, let's look at three lessons that Jesus gives us in order that we could lead to our, that would lead to our own happiness, all right? So three lessons the Lord gives in this text, all coming down to a head at verse 17, that leads to blessed are those who do them, are happier those who do them. Here's the first heading I want to give you. You see it there in your bulletin. The teacher gives valuable instruction. And your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, is the value of an object lesson. Look at verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Now, 
you'll remember, we've been in this passage a couple of weeks, and in John 13, we're seeing how Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and it all happened on the night before Jesus was to be crucified. This is at the Last Supper, where we read in verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, he departed uh, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We spent a little time just being reminded how Jesus loves you to the end. He loves you to the uttermost. He gave his life for you. And in these last moments of his life, he did some pretty intense teaching just to his disciples where John records over a third of this gospel, of this discourse of the upper room of what Jesus wants to say to his disciples. And so we we see in verse 4 how Jesus rose from supper and he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. This would have been humbling for the disciples. This was Jesus, the divine agent of creation, the anointed one, the almighty God, the son of God stooping low to wash the disciples' feet. And so in shock, Peter asked the Lord, he said, do you wash my feet? And in verse 7, Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, when Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, he is saying that if I don't wash you with the waters of regeneration, then you cannot share in my kingdom. Jesus is saying, if I don't cleanse you through the pure blood of the lamb, then you have no part with me. Jesus is saying, I must wash you. And what he's really saying is, I must save you so that you can be born again. To which Peter replies in verse 9, Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Peter had a tendency to overreact. Peter had a tendency of going from one extreme to another. So Peter tells the Lord, well, if that's the case, just wash all of me, every part of me. To which Jesus responds in verse 10, the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. Basically, what Jesus has been doing through his teaching that night was to give his disciples an object lesson. And an object lesson is a teaching method that uses a physical object or practice to communicate an important principle. And in this case, the original washing that Jesus discusses in verse 8 is referring to salvation. But the foot washing that Jesus does that night is not demonstrating salvation, but sanctification. If you take a bath, then your whole body is clean, but your feet will need to be cleaned more often because in Israel, especially in the first century, people walked around in sandals without socks, mind you. Please, no socks with the sandals, people. Come on. All right, but they will walk around, unless you're over 90, okay, and you can do whatever you want. All right, but the idea here is that they would wash feet more regularly. It was a way of showing hospitality and care and service to one another. And Jesus is teaching in this object lesson is that you can only be regenerated once, but repentance from ongoing sin should be a daily occurrence. 
Salvation is an event that happens in time, while sanctification is the daily growth of the true disciple of Jesus. Every Jesus follower will need to be reminded of the fact that you need regular foot washings, regular cleansing, regular times of, of, of putting off sinful things and replacing that with God-honoring things. In fact, turn with me to Ephesians 4, just so you can see it here. Such a key text that we use in biblical counseling, in biblical sanctification, as I try to talk and teach and train my kids to do the right thing for the right reason. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, Paul writes, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So when you hear people say, you need to put off, put off, this is like discarding dirty clothes so that you can take a bath. And Paul tells us here, we need to put off our old self. It belongs to the former way of life before you were saved. It's corrupt and it's filled with deceitful desires. And then what you need to do, verse 23, is be renewed in the spirit of your minds. I have a little pet peeve with biblical counselors when they say, put off and put on put off and put on. And I'm like, well, I like that, but don't forget about verse 23. Put off, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then you put on. And it's that middle part that is the part of Christ washing us and cleansing us and changing us in our inner man. And then we can, verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is foot washing. This is what we're talking about. This is what Christians do. They confess and repent and pray for renewal and strength to put on the new self and to walk in the light of Jesus every single day. And that's part of what Jesus means when he asked back in John 13, do you understand what I have done for you? And yet we are also going to see in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus washed the disciples' feet as an example of, for them to follow. Okay, so we could actually say at this point, there's three things we can learn from the foot washing. Number one, you only need to be washed once. That's salvation. Number two, sanctification is having your feet washed every day. And then number three, it's a humble example of service of how we can serve also one another. Three things you can learn from the foot washing. But let's move on in our outline if we can and say that not only does Jesus teach us the value of an object lesson, he also uses the value of affirmation. That's your next blank. In his teaching, he uses the value of affirmation. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Now, there is so much we can learn from Jesus's teaching style. He gives object lessons. He teaches in parables. He asks penetrating questions. But Jesus also uses what I like to call the art of affirmation. Jesus is affirming his disciples for calling him teacher and Lord. And so in verse 13, when, when they had earlier referred to him as teacher and Lord, he says, you know what, you're right. You're right, for so I am. I am the teacher and the Lord. And we see this art of affirmation pretty much throughout Jesus' ministry. There's an example in Mark 12 when a scribe comes to him and the, the scribe asks him what's the most important uh, of the commandments and Jesus tells him and the scribe says, hey, you're right, those are the most important commandments. And Jesus is kind of impressed with this guy and he says, you know what, you have answered wisely. You are not far from the kingdom of God. So in other words, in that setting, Jesus affirmed 
that this scribe, though he wasn't yet saved, he affirmed that he was heading in the right direction, and he told him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You answered that pretty wisely. We see this same affirmation that Jesus used when he affirmed Peter in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. This is where we read, now Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say uh, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You hear what Jesus is doing? He's saying, you're right. He's giving the art of affirmation in his teaching, affirming that Peter got it right. And one other time we see it is in John 18, 37, when Jesus was affirming Pilate's conclusion that Jesus was a king in the NASB, John 18, 37. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so are you a king? Jesus answered, or he said, so you are a king, still with a, maybe a question mark. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king, for this I have been born. Now here is what we are seeing. Jesus loves to teach, and one of his teaching methods is to affirm what he can from his pupil, and then to take that pupil to the next level. And that's what Jesus is doing in these examples that I've just given to you, in the case of John 13, 13, Jesus is affirming that the disciples are right in calling him teacher and Lord. This is showing, by the way, when they call him teacher and Lord, it's like the highest honor among men, teacher, highest honor, period, Lord, Yahweh uh, is, is the translation of the, of the Septuagint, that he is divine. Basically, Jesus is saying, I accept those titles of being the teacher and being the Lord. Now, watch this. In, in every case, when Jesus gives an affirmation, he then goes on to tell us something more. So he affirms what we already know, and then he tells us something in addition to that that we don't yet know. For example, when Jesus affirms Pilate's take that Jesus is a king, he then goes further and tells Pilate that he has come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And he goes on to talk about the purpose and point of his kingdom being a spiritual kingdom of salvation. When Jesus affirms Peter in the Caesarea Philippi account of Matthew chapter 16, when he affirms that what Peter had said that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, he then goes on to tell Peter that it is on this statement that the church is to be built and that the gates of hell would never prevail over it and that the disciples were to be governing Christ's church with authority. So he affirms what Peter says, and he installs more information to him. And so back here again in John 13, Jesus is saying, you are right in calling me teacher and Lord, but that's just part of it. You're right in saying that, but there's a whole lot more I want to pack into this to teach you, and I'm going to teach you something else. And what that is, is I'm going to teach you that you need to be washing one another's feet. It's not just enough for you to say, Jesus, you're an awesome teacher, and you're Lord of all. He's like, you're right. But there's more. There's more to that. And just like I've washed your feet and you understand the difference between salvation and sanctification, now let me add some more and say, you need to be serving like this. You need to be doing what I'm doing. I now want you to put into practice what you've been learning by living it out for yourself. Valuable teaching that we see here. 
Let me give you one more thing that we could observe. It's the value of modeling. That's your next blank, the value of modeling. So the value of an object lesson, the value of affirming. By the way, that works so good with children, the value of affirming. Hey, you're right, little Johnny, when you said this and this, but let me show you a little bit more. Right, teachers, you know that. You want to affirm what the student does have and then take them to the next level. But one more value, the value of modeling, verses 14 and 15. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And so Jesus says, if I am your Lord and teacher, and if this is true, and it is that I am divine and I am the teacher, if it is true that I would have the highest spiritual position among men and at the same time be the son of God. And if I have washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. And at this point, Jesus is saying that as divine royalty, I have humbled myself to serve you and you ought to also be serving one another. Washing each other's feet in this context is an act of, of humble service. This is what Christians are called to do. Christians are called to serve one another in the most humble and the most sacrificial and the most loving of ways. Now let me just also say here while we're here that I don't believe, as some Christians do, that foot washing is to be taken literally here as something that we're to continue. Some churches teach that you should literally wash one another's feet as an act of love and Christian charity, and their churches go so far as to teach that foot washing is a third ordinance, which they might practice once a month, once a quarter, or once a year. Now, sometimes we kind of snicker at that, like <laughs> washing each other's feet. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's beautiful. Right? I think it's beautiful. In fact, if I've been in a foot washing service before, and it touched my heart as somebody washed my feet. It, it makes, a, it makes a, a, an impact on you. I don't, however, think that it should be raised to the point of an ordinance such as baptism or the Lord's Supper, also known as communion. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, listen carefully, baptism and the Lord's Supper are clearly taught in all four Gospels and in the book of Acts and in the epistles. Foot washing is only mentioned here in John. Now you have a reference to some widows washing feet as an act of humble service, but it's not in the context of a church ordinance. So the idea here is that it would not be wise to make this an ordinance where it's the only place that it's mentioned in the gospel. I like D.A. Carson's quote on this, well-known theologian and scholar. He writes, quote, wise theologians and expositors have always been reluctant to raise to the level of universal right something that appears only once in Scripture. Furthermore, nowhere else in the earliest extra-biblical documents of the church is foot washing treated as an ecclesiastical right or as an ordinance. In fact, just this week, I was studying this passage. I'm walking to the cafeteria to have lunch with a college student. I see Dr. Will Varner, and I know Dr. Varner has done some work on what's called the Didache, which is a early church document that helps outline the church practice right after the Gospels ended. It's one of the earliest, most trusted sources that just kind of gives us an idea of what the early church did do and didn't do. And I'm like, Dr. V! He's like, yeah, Tyson. I'm like, hey, man, in the Didache, do we have any foot washing? He's like, Whoosh. 
no foot washing in the Didache. I'm like, thank you, Dr. B. You the man. You the man. So, so I'm, just, I'm just saying that foot washing didn't even begin until a little bit later in the church. It was not practiced outside of this occurrence recorded in John by the early church until a little bit later. So we're not saying it's bad or heretical. We're just saying I don't see it being brought up to this level of a true ordinance because I would say most of all, it would really be about the proper exegesis and meaning of this passage. And because Jesus has already given us the spiritual interpretation of what he has done, which was the one-time washing, which equals salvation, and the ongoing washing, which equals sanctification, then the spiritual interpretation continues with us understanding this act of foot washing to be an act of humble service. That's the point of the passage. The point of the passage isn't, as churches, you have to sit down and wash each other's feet and do this once a year, once a quarter. It's no, as Christians, every moment of every day, you're to be humbly serving one another. That as Christians, we should humbly follow in the Lord's footsteps and that serving one another is something we ought to do on a daily basis because Jesus has given us this example that we should do unto others as he has done unto us And that's why we see this idea of example several times as well in the New Testament about following Jesus' example. Peter tells us about it in 1 Peter 1, or excuse me, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. For this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow his steps. And in that case, it was going to the cross. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And the Bible says we're to follow that example. Jesus is our example in service, and Jesus is our example in sacrifice, and Jesus is our example in suffering, and he served us in doing this by dying to himself and accomplishing salvation on our behalf which I would say every time we're involved in humble service, dying to self and serving others, we're actually pointing back to the gospel. And in a, in a smaller way, we're saying, hey, that's what Christ did. He died to himself and he served us. And he ultimately did that by going to the cross. But he also washed feet just to say, hey, on a daily basis, we need to be serving each other. So every time you set down your status and you say, I'm going to serve somebody else and I'm going to humble myself and serve someone else, you're really pointing them back to the cross. John also writes about Jesus being our example in 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, Jesus is our example, and because he is our example, we ought to walk exactly like he walked in the same way, and we ought to be doing the same kinds of things, demonstrating the same humble service. And by the way, when Jesus served somebody, he seemed to do it with joy. And he seemed to do it, it was a privilege. And it didn't seem like he was really irritated to do it. Or that he was only doing it with such a duty mindset that he would really rather be somewhere else. And what we need to ask is for God to break us of our pride and to give us a joy in how we serve others. And here's the secret, as you just start doing it and asking God to help you do it with the right heart and attitude, he gives you that power. It's like at the beginning, you're like, I really don't feel like cleaning the bathroom. Oh my goodness, I really don't like cleaning this. And then you're just like, Lord, I need help. I need help to have the joy to serve like Jesus serves. 
Now, there's ways to serve spiritually, big time, using our gifts with gospel-centered ministry, but there's also there's those practical ways of serving, and if we're abiding in Christ and he's abiding in us, then it means that we ought to look at every relationship as an opportunity to love somebody and an opportunity to serve somebody. That's walking like Jesus walked in all parts of life. This is taught by Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So taking Christ's yoke means that you come under his authority, but it also means that you share in his work and in his service. That's why the Bible says don't be unequally yoked. And the idea is that you have an ox here, you need an ox here. You can't yoke an ox with a camel, right? So the idea is if Jesus is working and serving the Lord and we're coming alongside him working and serving, then he's helping us do what it is that he wants us to do and fulfilling the service that he's given to us. And he does it with gentleness and with humility and we're to do it the same way. We're to, in his power and in the rest he provides for our soul, we're to be gentle. We're to learn from him and we're to live like him and we're to act in that same way. And this is that truth that sometimes it is better caught than taught. Understand that? Sometimes it's better caught than taught. You catch it by being close to somebody who's doing it than just hearing them point their finger and say, do what I say. You know, it's that whole thing, do, do what I do, not just what I say, right? You catch it as you're watching Jesus do it, then it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's that object lesson idea again. I mean, this is not just telling your kids what to do, it's showing them what to do. It's not just telling them that you want them to do a certain thing, it's influencing them by your own example, living your life in such a way that shows them how to follow the Lord. And so let me ask you this morning, are you, are you just serving one another in these ways? You know, where, where does the Bible say that domestic duties belong to the wife? Where does it say that in the Bible? Laundry, dishwashing, folding clothes. Now, I get it. You, you're married to a wife. It's like, man, it's my joy to serve the house this way. You know what? We'll say, honey, it's my joy to serve you once in a while where you don't have to do that all the time. Or let's do it together. Let, let's, let's wash and clean together. Come on, wives, can I get an amen? I need to hear a feminine amen out there. Okay, there it is. I, I think I heard it. But the idea is like, of course wives want to carry the, the load in so many ways, but I'm just saying, guys, come on, this is practical. This is like serving each person in every way. It wasn't too long ago we had a couple over, and uh, me and the guy were doing dishes because I knew I was going to preach this text. So me and the guy were... Um, <laughs> We were doing dishes after dinner, and the wife was sitting at the table, and she's just kind of looking over at her husband, and she's just smiling so big, and he looks over and says, honey, what, what? She's like, I haven't seen you do that in a while, and he's like, well, okay, you know, so it's just a reminder, right? Every day, we need to be reminded of this. You're no more like Jesus than when you're serving. Just this weekend, just yesterday, I'm trying to think of practical ways to relate this sermon to my kids, and so we had a big mess at house. We're eating. There's this big mess. All the kids are like, oh, and I'm like, the kid who's the most like Jesus will get up and clean that mess right now. <laughs> so sure enough, one of my kids jumps up and then just clean it all up. Now, some people call that manipulation. <laughs> I call it training. We're training our kids, right, to serve one another. But I was just trying to point them back to Jesus and say, hey, that's what Jesus does, right? He's the vacuum cleaner, right? He goes around, he just does all the dirty work. He gets on his hands and his knees and he serves us. 
And he does it in the big, bold, spiritual teaching, and he did it by something as simple as washing feet. And so let me ask you this morning, are you washing one another's feet? And what does that look like in your family? And what does that look like in your marriage? And what does that look like in your small group? And what does that look like as we care for our missionaries? What does that look like right here at our church? Uh, I mean, I could tell you this, one practical way, if you're feeling convicted, you're like, all right, Tyson, you got me, you got me. Then guess what? We're going to be moving in just a couple of months over to TMU while this building gets redone. We need a team of about 20 foot washers of people, men and women alike, who would say, you know what, on Sunday morning, I'd be willing to get up early on the Lord's Day to help set up and tear down. And if that's you this morning, then come talk to me after the service. And we'll get you signed up because we'd like to have a team of about 20 people of foot washers. All right? Maybe another practical way is you could be a part of that volleyball tournament. Maybe volleyball is not your thing. I already told you you don't have to be an Olympian. You just have to be a warm body who says, you know what, I'm going to show up and I'm going to help out however I can. I mean, let's be a church that washes one another's feet. And let's do it with joy. And let's do it with happiness because that's where this text is going to take us. Is blessed are you or happy are you if you're doing these things. But we got to get there, and we'll get there in a couple more minutes, all right? So let's move on to number two. Now that we've seen the teacher giving valuable instruction, let's now look at how the teacher uses relatable illustrations. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, you know, he's saying, listen up, I got something important to say. And not only has Jesus already used an object lesson, but now he's going to give us two illustrations to tell us what it is that he's trying to tell us. And the first one is this. Number one, or A, a servant is not greater than his teacher. See that where he says a servant is not greater than his master. Same thing in John 15, 20. Jesus said, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Now, this statement almost goes without saying, but Jesus said it. So let's look at it. And the word for servant here, as you might have guessed, is the word doulos, which we know means sli- slave. Excuse me. The, du- the word doulos means slave. So the question is being asked, well, who's greater, the master or the slave? Well, obviously, the master is greater. The slave is obligated by his social position to carry out the master's orders. The slave is obligated to serve his master hand and foot. The servant would be expected to do menial tasks for the master, such as to wash his feet. But in this case, the master is actually washing the slave's feet. The master is serving the servant. The master is humbling himself and stooping low to serve his fellow man which should cause us to stop and ask the question, well, what kind of master would do this? What kind of king would get off of his throne? What kind of deity would come to earth and serve mortality? So if this is true, that the master is greater than the servant, but this master yet humbles himself to become like the servant, what are we to think of this master? Well, I think we're to think that this master is nothing like us. I think that we're to think that this master is otherworldly. I think that we're to think that this master is the most humble and selfless master ever known. I think that we're to think that this master is definitely emptying himself to take on the form of a servant, Philippians 2. And by becoming a servant, Jesus humbled himself, and at the same time, he honored us. Lowly peasants that we are, 
We are not many noble, we are not many wise, we are not many powerful, and yet Christ washed the feet of a bunch of Galilean fishermen. You must keep in mind that in the first century, the Romans had no use for humility, and the Greeks had no use and despised manual labor. And Jesus combined both of these when he washed the disciples' feet. He was humble and doing manual labor. Both the Roman culture and the Greek culture wouldn't have got it at all. The world may ask, how many people work for you? But this text begs the question, how many people do you work for? How many people do you serve? How many feet do you wash? Luke twenty-two twenty-seven. Jesus says, For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Now, everything in us makes us want to say, well, it's the one reclining at the table, obviously. And Jesus says that. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So he's saying, hey, human nature is it's the one at the table reclining, but I'm going to get off the table, get under the table, serve people, and I'm the greatest of all, and greatness comes through service. Does it come from just sitting up there and having your feet propped up? Unless you're getting a pedicure given to you by your husband because he loves you so much, right? But the idea is we're to have that heart of serving one another in this way. The second illustration that is given here is a messenger. Your next blank. A messenger is not greater than his sender. You see where he says that nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Again, we're asking the question, who is greater, the messenger or the sender? This one may not be quite as clear, but the answer is the same. The sender outranks the messenger. Whoever is sending the message has the upper status, is more important, has a higher rank. The messenger is either a hired servant or a volunteer who offers to carry the message. And so Jesus is simply saying that he is the sender and the disciples are his messengers. The original content starts with Jesus. The information is clearly created by Jesus. The copyright belongs to Jesus. And he's called his disciples into his service to deliver the message. And while this may be true, Jesus is happy to serve the messenger. Jesus humbles himself to serve those that he outranks because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and offer his life as a ransom for many. And in Matthew 10, 24, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Again, we read in Luke 6, 40, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So if the teacher's teaching you how to serve and getting off his high position to get to a lower position so he can serve, bottom line, that's what Jesus did. He is the teacher. Jesus has humbled himself to serve his disciples. And even though he was infinitely greater than them, he wanted to serve them. And this is the epitome of servant leadership. Sure, there were times when Jesus was out front No doubt he was the face of the ministry, but there are also times like this when he is behind the scenes humbly serving his disciples. And in Christ, we are all servants of the Lord. We are all his disciples. We are all not above our teacher, but when we are fully trained, we will be like him. This means that as we continue to grow in our knowledge of the Lord and in our love for the Lord, then we will be more like the Lord, and that means more humble service. God doesn't care about your income. 
He cares about your output in serving others with their right heart and their right attitude. God doesn't care about your position. He cares about your practice of serving others with humility and grace. God doesn't care about your status. He cares about your service. So the teacher gives us valuable instruction. The teacher uses reliable illustrations. And then last here, this third point, the teacher issues a suitable incentive. Look at verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Your first blank, the importance of knowing the truth. The word know, the first part of verse 17 here means to understand. It means to be intimately acquainted with. Jesus says, if you know these things, what things you may ask, I believe Jesus is referring back to verses 14 and 15 when he talked about, they talked about him being the teacher and the Lord who had washed their feet, and now he's telling them to do likewise. He said, if you know that, if you know I'm the teacher and the Lord, and this is what you need to do, you've you got to know that, like really, really know that. Please, please note that first you have to know before you can do, and this is a reminder that we need to know the truth. You know, there are some people who gravitate towards just knowing, 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 and they study and debate theology, and they can tell you this and tell you that. And then there's other people who say, hey, this stuff doesn't matter. We got to be doing, 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 serving, serving, serving. And what I'm saying, it's both. They're both elevated. We got to know, know, know. And we got to serve, serve, serve. And he starts off in verse 17 saying, you got to know it before you can really do it. We need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to know the gospel. We need to know good doctrine. We need to know what the Bible says. And part of the problem with the church today is I believe there are too many that are pursuing that practical application more so than teaching the Bible and being focused on God's word. They're more focused on the culture. So they become a culture-driven church instead of a Bible-driven church that tells us we need to reach our culture. What I'm saying here is that one comes out of the other. You have to know orthodoxy before you can demonstrate orthopraxy. You have to have a solid biblical doctrine before you can have a solid biblical practice. You have to seek to know the Lord and his word so that you can do what it is that he's asking you to do. This is Philippians 3.8 where Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So he's saying you have to know Christ before you can suffer for him. You have to gain Christ before you can give Christ and his teaching out to those around you. And you, you can never gain eternal life by doing You only gain eternal life by knowing and trusting him by faith. You have to have that kind of knowledge of that experiential gospel transformation of your life. This is why Jesus says explicitly in John 17, 3 about the knowing part. He says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they know you. He doesn't say eternal life is serving you, even though it's tied to that important understanding you can't divorce the two, but he says that knowing you, that eternal life is knowing you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's, it's all grace of understanding the truth and repenting and believing by faith. It's all grace, but everyone who's been saved by grace will begin to obey 
by grace and live out the Christian life and the power of the Spirit, which is where he moves in verse 17. He says, hey, if you know these things, the blessing comes by obeying the truth. That's your next blank. If you know them, you need to do them. He's saying the blessing of obeying the truth. There's a blessing to know the truth. There's also a blessing of obeying the truth. I told you at the beginning of the sermon that the theme verse of this passage is this verse. And in fact, I believe that Jesus has been driving for this point from the beginning of the chapter up until this moment. The object lesson of washing the disciples' feet, the illustrations that he used, the reminder that the disciples really need to know these things all lead to the punch of blessed are you if you do them. Remember, blessed could be rightly translated as happy. This is a spiritual truth. This is a motivation. This is an incentive for obedience. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Christians need incentives in order to obey. They should obey out of their love for God and his glory. But I am saying that it is right and biblical to use words like reward as a motivation for obedience, it's a biblical truth that blessing follows obedience. Turn with me to Psalm 1. Let's just look at a couple of these real quick about how blessing follows obedience is a regular teaching throughout the Bible, that if you put into practice what it is that God has taught you, then you'll be blessed. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all he does he prospers. Psalm 1-1 starts with blessed. Psalm 1-3 ends with prosper. You're blessed and you prosper if you do everything in the middle, which is basically turning away from evil, turning to God, and obeying him. And when you obey God, you'll be blessed. Now, don't think here charismatic blessings of materialism. Think here prosperity of spiritual vitality, spiritual joy, the peace of the Spirit that passes all understanding, a happy marriage, a happy home, contentment in Christ. That's what we really want because materialism never gives that to you anyway. But the, but the idea is if you are walking in the truth, you'll be blessed and you'll have prosperity. Look at Psalm 128.1. Psalm 128.1 teaches us the same thing. Blessed or happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. So you'll be happy or blessed in God if you are fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. Listen to Proverbs 16, 20. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Uh, Joshua 1, 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do everything in it so that you can find prosperity and success. The same idea. Meditate on the word of God so that you can obey the word of God so that you can have prosperity and success in God and in his word. And so let me just say as well here that the term blessed, lest you think when I say be happy in the Lord and be blessed, it's only this all the time, you know, silly emotion only, though I think emotion is important, it doesn't dominate. So listen to this. The word blessed does not necessarily refer to those 
who are considered happy by others, nor even primarily to those who consider themselves happy, but to those who are indeed objects of God's favor, whether or not they are considered happy by other men or even themselves. According to the Sermon on the Mount, the blessed ones may be poor or they may even be in mourning. The blessedness spoken of here, at least primarily, is not that of a feeling, but that of an inner spiritual condition before God. Before God, in his eyes, you are blessed if you know Christ and you are walking in his ways. And so please note, back in John 13, 17, it says you're blessed if the blessings of God are not automatic for all people universally, Distributed to all people, the blessings flow where the grace of God has gained a foothold and then a wholesale takeover. And when the grace of God covers you, it transforms you. And when the grace of God transforms you, it changes your nature. And when your nature is new, your desires are new. And when your desires are new, your outer actions are new. And when your outer actions are new, fueled by a new heart with new passions, then you begin to bear the fruit of repentance and the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of a new life in Christ. And that fruit is you putting into action all that you've learned and all that you've been commanded to do. And as you walk in obedience, you are now receiving in full the blessings of God. And you cannot receive the blessings of God and remain sad. And you cannot receive the blessings of God and be grumpy. And you cannot receive the blessings of God and be in despair. And you receive the blessings of the Lord and they change you and they make you be blessed and to be happy, and the joy of the Lord is your strength, and your heart is filled with gladness, for he has made you glad. Now, the opposite of this is also true. If you're not walking in obedience, then you lose joy. You have guilt heaped up on you and the consequences of your sin. James 1.22 says we're to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And it goes on to talk about the consequence of the one who hears but doesn't do, the one who hears and does, the perfect law, the law of liberty, is going to be blessed in what he does. And so if you are only a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, you are deceived and you have forgotten who you are. But when you read the word of God, which gives liberty and freedom, then you will remember who you are in Christ and what it is that God has called you to and you will be able to be a faithful doer, and in that you will be blessed. Jesus is saying, I believe here in this passage, I want you to be blessed, church. I want you to be happy, church. I want you to receive the reward I have for you, but I also need to ask you to walk in obedience. And if you're not walking in obedience, again, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You need to be walking in obedience. You've been made holy by Christ's sacrifice. Now you are to walk in holiness in everyday life. You've been made righteous by Christ's righteousness. Now you are to live a righteous life. You have been made new by the blood of Jesus. Now you are to walk in newness of life. Do you want to be happy? It's not about forgiving yourself, treasuring yourself, meditating about yourself and how great you are to be the best version of you. No, 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 no. It's look at Christ. Look at what he did for you. If 
you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, let me call you out of darkness into light. And it's not just coming to Jesus so you can be happy. It's coming to Jesus because he wants to make you holy. He wants to cleanse you from your sins so you don't face the ultimate consequence of hell forever. And it's about looking at Christ's sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, and say, you know what? I believe he did that for me to make me holy. And as I walk in the holiness of God as one who's been born again by faith, all by the grace of God, then you know what? He begins to instill in me a happiness I've never known. I've never, I've never known this kind of happiness. I've never experienced this degree of blessedness that's not tied to my health or my relationships or my possessions. It's just tied to Jesus. And as I'm tying my emotions and my direction and my affection and everything to him, I'm being filled and I'm being satisfied like never before. And it makes me want to just walk with him. Just every day, just to walk with him. I love how I believe the hymn, Trust and Obey, puts this all together when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way while we do his good will. He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be, what? Happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Verse three, not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil he doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Do you know the Lord today? Are you blessed in him? God demonstrates his love toward us and this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Trust him, obey him, and experience how humble service leads to blessings and happiness in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these reminders from John 13. Thank you for the master teacher who gave object lessons, who affirmed some things that were already known, who gave incredible illustrations, who really challenges us to not only know, but to do. God, would you help us find that perfect balance of knowing you and your word as we just meditate on the word and spend hours throughout the week pouring over scripture. And God, light a fire under us that that would all translate into living it out. And may it start at home with our spouses and with our family and with our roommates. May we be light and salt in this world. And may we serve at church like never before. May we be quick to get up out of our seat, to stoop low, to serve someone else. God, help us to love cleaning up messes for your glory. Help us to love looking at Jesus, thinking about the humility of the anointed one washing the feet of the disciples. Help us to love what Jesus taught and to show that love for him by doing what he did. Help us as a church by your spirit and for your glory to apply these things in Jesus' name, amen.